I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a couple IPOs that have come out. We've got uh, Airbnb and DoorDash that have just uh, recently IPO'd, and we're going to look at their stock prices and uh, and dig into, you know, is there good value there or not? Um, so let's take a look at to start off here, uh, Airbnb. So Airbnb is, I think, hovering now around a hundred forty-five dollars a share, as you can see here, um, which is up over seventy-six dollars. Uh, from where the stock opened, over a hundred percent. So, is this too much? Um, well, there's a couple things to look at. Let's look at Airbnb's S1. This is uh, this is what Airbnb came out with, you know, when filing with the S uh, with the SEC. And look at these numbers here. So, there are 28 days. Uh, these are 28 million nights booked. Is is how Airbnb tracks this. And many of their competitors, like a booking.com does as well. So you got 28 million in July, 26 million in August, call it 24 million in September. You can see their numbers in, in, in Q4 of 2019 were actually uh, much higher, 28 million being the, the lowest number, right? So you had that number in July, but then it started to go down August, September. They're telling the story that they're bouncing back. But, you know, the question is, well, is, is that actually the case uh, or is this thing overpriced? Let's compare this with Booking.com. Here's Booking.com third quarter earnings release here. You can see 127 million um, nights booked in Q3 of 2020. That went down to 28 million in Q2 of 2020 and was at 124 million in Q1. So let's just compare that against Airbnb's numbers. So you've got about, call it, you know, 78 million in Q3 of 2020 for Airbnb. And you got 127 million for booking.com uh, q2 booking at 28 airbnb had more they had about uh, 50 million in q2 q1 you know kind of before really covid hit airbnb had about 89 90 million q1 of 2020 booking.com had 124 million so obviously these these businesses are really valued on growth and the trajectory of growth. So is Airbnb going to be growing more than booking.com? Uh booking.com has different inventory. Booking.com has a lot more hotel inventory than they do from the user generated kind of, you know, peer to peer type of model that Airbnb has, right? So they're not apples to apples, but they're certainly much closer than comparing Marriott to Airbnb. Right now, 
Airbnb is valued more than Booking.com. Booking.com has an $86 billion uh, valuation and Airbnb, I think, is hovering around $100 billion uh, based upon this, this share price of $140, $144, dollars a share. I mean, if you just look at it on the surface, again, Booking.com, they, they monetize those nights differently than Airbnb does. It's kind of a lot more hotel than user-generated kind of peer-to-peer sharing, right, you know, in the home that Airbnb is. Um, they have different growth profiles of the business. But to me, Airbnb just feels high. You look at where they were ra- where they were valued in the private markets, right? They were valued in the low 30s of billions of dollars uh, going into 2020, right? So in 2019, they had low 30s. Then they went down to the high teens when they had to take this money. Uh, quickly because of COVID from some of these private equity financiers. So how do you go from, you know, 32 to 18 to 100? (laughs) Uh, Greater than booking. If if we're just looking, if we're solely just looking at nights booked, even the nights booked don't even line up, right? And then you look at booking.com. Booking.com does other stuff. They've got rental cars in here, which is small. They've got airline tickets in here. You know, it, it just seems high to me. And we don't know the full picture of Airbnb, right? We don't, it's, it's actually much harder when you look at Airbnb's S1 to kind of get a, a much stronger kind of apples to apples comparison. I would wait a quarter. I would wait to, let's see how Q4 for Airbnb does, right? Let's see how Q4 of 2020 lines up against Q4 of 2019. You look at booking.com here, right? You look at their year-over-year growth. They're growing at 10, 11, 12% year-over-year. You look at these quarterly growth rates here in nights sold. It's not bad. It's not bad growth. I mean, it's, it's decent growth. It's not amazing growth. It's decent growth. And if anything, I think what we are seeing is that the COVID and pandemic has prevented an opportunity for the bookings and the Expedias to move into more of Airbnb's territory. So there's still a lot of unknown with Airbnb. I wouldn't say it's as sure of a bet as uh, as DoorDash. And that is the next one here. So Airbnb, I would just wait a little bit. It's hot. It's too hot. It's too hot for me to touch uh, as, you know, personally, if, if, right. It's a platform. Eventually, it will definitely be in plat um, when there's a rebalance and all that kind of stuff. It definitely fits all the platform criteria. But again, um, I'm actually thankful that plat doesn't rebalance, isn't rebalancing anytime soon because, you know, plat including uh, Airbnb at $145 a share. Mm, yeah, that's probably going to come down a little bit. Um, I would wait. I would wait to kind of let the dust settle. Let the fervor settle. Let the hysteria settle. It's uh, it's just too aggressive right now. Um, that's Airbnb. DoorDash is a little bit of a different story here. DoorDash, you know, I had a very positive, generally a very positive overview when analyzing their S1. $7.25 billion in GMV for DoorDash in Q3 of 2020. Look at this growth, right? It's three and a half X from $2 billion in Q3 of 2019. Okay, that is bonkers growth. 
it does not fully check out with some of their other claims where they're talking about October. You know, we, we showed the numbers that DoorDash said in October of 2020, they were the largest food delivery platform in the United States. Bold claims. I'm going to line that up against Uber in a minute here. This is the chart I'm talking about. They're saying October 2020, we did 50% in the category. And then, you know, Uber Eats, between Uber Eats and Postmates, they're doing like 34%. I don't know. I don't know about this stat. I do give DoorDash a lot of credit for what they've done. But let's look at Uber's numbers. Here's Uber's Q3 earnings. Look at these numbers here. This is their um, ride sharing, 5.9 billion in GMV. And then below that is delivery. That's going to be um, Uber Eats. That's 8.5 billion. You can see ride sharing tanking and uh, food delivery spiking. Makes sense. So 8.5 billion, uh, 134% increase from Q3 of 2019. So not your. 350% increase. Okay. And then you had a 53% decline on the ride sharing. And net net, they had an overall decline on GMV uh, um, for 10% decline. Okay. But 8.55 billion in Uber Eats is not the same thing as the 7.25 that DoorDash had. Now, I assume that discrepancy is from Uber being global. Uber Eats being global and having multiple international markets. And we don't really know exactly what the split of this uh, GMV, this 8.5 billion is in the United States versus other markets, right? Whereas DoorDash is pretty much exclusively just in the United States. So that's where I take the discrepancy to come from. It's interesting why they reported that on October versus rather than September where you know, you, you, we, we don't know how Uber is doing. How do they know how Uber is doing? You know, they're clearly getting a third-party data source to help them infer um, what, what people are spending. You know, you can get these like firms that track credit card spend and then, and then that's how you kind of extrapolate what DoorDash is doing versus Uber Eats versus Grub versus Postmates. But, but, but still, nonetheless, bold claim, DoorDash, hey, we're the biggest U.S., food delivery platform bigger than Uber Eats and Postmates combined. Hasn't closed yet their acquisition of Postmates, but still, even when that closes, um, they are saying that they would still be bigger. Hmm. Interesting, right? So DoorDash stock is at $186. It's right around a $59, $60 billion valuation. Uber's at $96 billion. Okay. Clearly, Uber has food delivery and ride sharing. And, you know, again, the, the $8.5 billion that, uh, that, that Uber Eats is, is reporting in Q3, you got, you got another $1.25 billion, $1.3 billion in extra GMV on DoorDash. But again, we don't know exa the exact split of the international breakdown there. But still, if you say, well, if DoorDash is at 60 and Uber has another, you know, 20% of volume on, um, on, uh, on where DoorDash is, 
then is that another 20% of value? So if they're at 60, should, you know, Uber Eats value be at 70? And then what do you, you know, what do you put the 5 billion and change of, of uh, ride sharing value at? If you're tracking on these, uh, <laughs> on these GMV multiples, these guys are saying, yeah, if, if you annualize that, if, if they're doing say 32, 30 to $35 billion in, in a uh, food delivery GMV and you're, prescribing a 60 to 70 billion dollar valuation you know you're somewhere like a 2x gmv multiple which is high very high and if you give a 1x gmv multiple to ride sharing i'm just this is just back of the napkin okay guys um and you annualize where uber ride sharing comes out if you just take the 5 billion and change you got 20 and change in gmv so yeah, you get if you if you're given a two x GMV multiple to the to the food delivery, you give a one x to the ride sharing. You kind of get to the ninety five. You kind of get to the sixty um, on DoorDash. And I'm not saying this isn't exact math, right? But my point is, back of the napkin, the numbers fit a lot better on DoorDash than they do on Airbnb. Right. And again, the ability to monetize, well, what what are your margins? What do you take down from revenue off of GMV? What's your take rate? Right. All all these all these other things. It all goes into it. What's the growth? I mean, the growth on DoorDash is uh uh is insane. But Uber Eats also had great growth, right? Over a hundred percent year over year growth looking at, at the Q3 of this year versus last year. If you were to buy one and you say that a lot of it, you know, a lot of this kind of comes into saying, well, what, what's the rebound from COVID? Tree Tran, a partner at Applico and former co-founder of Muntry, he raised over $100 million for that business kind of marketplace for, for food, uh, food meals. Um, he was quoted in that Bloomberg article about DoorDash and, and what happens with COVID. So, you know, is is this insane acceleration of digital ordering, digital food ordering, you know, is that trend line going to stay the same or is that going to claw back a little bit, right? Look, if you look at 21, I think there's going to be some claw back, right? Because literally right now, many restaurants, you can only do takeout. And if you can sit in, it's maybe 25% capacity. I mean, just the dynamics that you have for food delivery literally couldn't get any better. So, you know, to me, it's much, it's much harder to say if you're doing 7.25 or if you're doing $8.5 billion in food delivery GMV, can you just annualize that um, forward? I don't know. That, that feels much tougher to me to do. I think you're going to have some clawback. Doesn't mean that you're going to retreat to pre-COVID levels. I think you got a lot of behavior change here. I think you got a lot more adoption by restaurants. I think, you know, just a lot of these behavior changes will, will stay, but you're also going to have people want to go back to eating in restaurants. When you bring that optionality in, you can't expect that everyone, you know, that, that you keep the same level. There will be growth and these platforms are growing, but um, again, these businesses are valued on their growth. These growth rates aren't going to remain the same. And I think 
I think you are going to see, um, you know, I think a 2X GMV multiple on that annualized GMV, if you take the eight or the seven and annualize it, right, to, to roughly, you know, above or below a little over 30 billion in GMV, it's just high. It's a very generous multiple. I think if you wanted to be more cautious, you probably could wait a little bit on, I think in, in general, the markets are just high. Uh, in general, platforms are just, you know, they're untouchable. I mean, when you look at Platt's performance, we've literally beaten every other tech index in the space. Um, IYW, QQQ, um, that, you know, which is the NASDAQ 100, uh, you, you name a tech index, and uh, we've, we've probably beaten it. Year to date, this thing is up 52%. It's insane. Since inception, 70%. 70%. In general, that makes a ton of sense to me, right? Platforms, the most dominant business model of our time, the strongest business model of tech companies, they retreat less in a recession or in a downturn, and they bounce back faster. Oh boy, have we seen that, right? I mean, that is... In a nutshell, what we've seen from platform businesses. I mean, it's, um, it's really just a beautiful thing to see. So, because, you know, honestly, if I had just prescribed this and said, yeah, if, you know, if I just make that statement, they retreat the least in a downturn and they bounce back faster, you'd say, yeah, well, everyone says that. But yeah, yeah, no, actually, here's the data, here are the numbers. Uh, it's real. And, you know, a lot of people have put money into this thing and, you know, are benefiting from it. So anyway, full disclosure, we, you know, uh, have worked with Wisdom Tree on it. We license data to them that helps them make this product and, and, and have this instrument uh, function. But long story short, is Airbnb too high? I think it is. Is DoorDash more realistic? Yes. Are platform stocks in general high? Yes. You know, is there madness happening in the markets? Absolutely, because the Fed has printed over $7 trillion and we've never seen anything like this ever before. Um, is now the right time to invest in the markets or not? That's up to you. I can't predict the future. I can just tell you relatively between these two things, DoorDash is much more appropriately priced than Airbnb. I think that's pretty much uh, for certain. So um, last topic here is the Facebook antitrust stuff. So this came out, um, lots of different stories on this, but there's basically two complaints here. There's a suit filed by the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and then there's a suit filed by 48 different states and, and attorney generals. They are arguing a lot of the same things that Facebook has abused its monopoly positioning, um, particularly in acquiring Instagram and WhatsApp uh, for a billion dollars each roughly. And that, you know, they use their positioning to be anti-competitive, to thwart other competitors, to somewhat bully these startups into getting acquired, and um, they need to be broken up. I would agree that content platforms and many of the large uh, platform monopolies, particularly Facebook, Amazon, Google, um, and Apple are absolutely monopolies. Uh, that is easy to prove um, if you have a, a, a skilled um, a, you know, attorney and an informed um, litigator. 
which unfortunately many of these people don't fit that definition. These lawsuits, though, if you break up Facebook from WhatsApp and Instagram, you know, is that actually going to change Facebook's dominance? Is that actually going to solve the problem? And what I want to show you is the number of DAUs that they have uh, by platform. And, you know, they'll break this down between, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram and WhatsApp. Number of top social platforms by active users in millions. You can see Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram uh, versus Twitter, LinkedIn, Snapchat, and Pinterest, right? So what they've been able to do is take their dominance and, and, and their network effects in the core platform business. Um, let's call that the social network of Facebook. And then you've been able to see them kind of now supercharge these adjacent uh, platform businesses. WhatsApp really being a communication platform, Instagram being kind of more like a content platform, frankly. Social networks and content platforms can you know, share a lot of similarities. Facebook.com, actually, I would say now exhibits both models. Um, but Facebook earlier, if you actually probably back up more so to when they acquired Instagram, Facebook was really more of a social network than it was a content platform. The thing that really made Facebook become a content platform was when you started to have more of this kind of one-to-many relationship, right? Where businesses and other users could publish information to uh, a myriad of different followers. And you kind of had that single opt-in model, that following model versus the double opt-in, which is that friending model, right? That was really Facebook's original model. I mean, there still is that today where you have friends. But now you can have double opt-in where, you know, I friend you, you accept, and single opt-in, which is the follow model. Follow models really more uh, regularly followed on Instagram, and, and Facebook still has the friending, kind of the double opt-in. Um, you can be private on Instagram, and now, you know, there's hybrid approaches to this kind of stuff. But I think you get the point. It's a combination of these three different businesses we talk a lot about on the show, this idea of platform conglomerates. Where Uber has that with Uber Eats and or, you know, Uber ride sharing was the core and then they got Uber Eats. And now, fortunately for Uber, they've had um, Uber Eats really actually uh, eclipse the volume in ride sharing just given COVID. That is a very critical uh, point of evolution for these platform businesses on their journey to monopoly power is when do you cross that chasm to not just have one platform business model, but multiple. Um, clearly, you know, you look at any of those big four, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple, they've got multiple uh, platform businesses that stack on top of each other. And now, that is ultimately what these attorney generals are trying to get at. The challenge is, if you've got over 2 billion users on Facebookjust.com, how do you solve that problem? And by splitting up these companies, does that actually solve the problems Within each of these ecosystems, certainly Facebook has been able to use its platform conglomerate status to supercharge these other adjacent models in WhatsApp communication and Instagram content. And they're about to layer in commerce, right, with the customer acquisition they just made. And the answer is no. Splitting these things up won't solve the 
problems that exist within the platforms themselves. And each of these in and of themselves are now massive businesses. So does breaking them up, quote unquote, help in the sense of it weakens Facebook's position if you're able to somehow magically be successful and break these companies up? Yes, it does, because now they don't control three, they would control one or two. But at the same time, will you be successful in fighting this case for years to actually break these things up? And I think, you know, you got to look at the merits of the case. I'm not a lawyer. I just know platforms pretty well. And I think that's an uphill battle. Waging the argument to go back and say, well, they shouldn't have been able to acquire this. And now because they own these companies, you know, because they own Instagram, because they own WhatsApp, that is making them disadvantage their their users more. But how are they disadvantaging their users? That really should be at the crux of these cases. And when you look at that, the main um, way that platforms take advantage of users, as you know, I'm a broken record on this show sometimes, is they take advantage of suppliers, of the creators in this case, right? We've talked about that. We had Tim Kendall on the show uh, from... Um, you know, early Facebook head of first head of monetization and elsewhere. And there's kind of there's two parts to this. There's the matchmaking and the algorithms that that determine what content goes into your newsfeed. And then there's the curation, right? And what penalizing action do I take on users that post infringing content, right? And and both of these things d- deserve a look by regulators and by the FTC. To help, to help regulate, you know, it's it, if you think back to AT and T, right? AT and T was a government granted monopoly which had government oversight, right? It was a regulated monopoly, right? And one of the argument that these lawyers, you know, these different attorney generals and the FTC make is that, you know, if you kick people off the platform, you are disadvantaging them. That's true, but again. By breaking them up, do you solve that problem? No, you actually don't. The, the problem is, well, what is the role of the platform to be able to kick you off? And if you are kicking people off, if you're modifying their content, if you are you know, suspending them um, unfairly, is that a violation of free speech? I think it is. And you know, that really is, in, is, is where government aggressively needs to step in. So. Government right now is kind of just trying to, it's like whack-a-mole, right? Everyone's trying to chase a different path. The irony is that no one is actually chasing this path, which is to say, these are monopolies by definition. Name of the book. Name of the show. They're monopolies. How can we better regulate the operation of the monopoly? And you got to look at these two things, matchmaking and um what we call rules and standards, right? So how do you curate usage on the platform or curate access to two mechanisms there? Talk a lot about it in the book. And you know, the last note I'll finish on is in general, these content platforms have gotten way too restrictive, way too aggressive with that rules and standards, with that curation of usage on the platform. Um, to some degree that you could probably call them fascist. Uh, which is just such an unfortunate irony in so many ways. But this is why. This is now YouTube's latest announcement that you can't talk about 
um, the 2020 election being fraudulent, right? And if you do, we can kick you off. Yesterday was a safe harbor deadline for the U.S. presidential election, and enough states have certified their election results to determine a president-elect. Given that, we will start removing any piece of content uploaded today that misleads people by alleging that widespread fraud or errors changed the outcome of the 2020 presidential election. If you talk about this, not only could your it go down, you know, not only could your videos be taken down, but your account could be threatened. You could be, you know, deplatformed, and all these kinds of things. This is not the value prop of platforms. It's not what they're supposed to stand for, right? The platform is not supposed to regulate speech in the way that these companies are. And Section 230, you know, does not give them the uh, protection to do that. The irony with removing 230, which we spoke about on the last episode, is that it could actually force more aggressive curation of free speech on the platforms because now the platforms are liable for what is said on the platform. Um, it's really tough to get a silver bullet here, you know, on what to do again when so many in government don't understand how these things work, except for the EU seems to kind of be on the right track here. But the US is just so far away that it's kind of like, just like a just a very blunt approach. It's just like, yeah, let's just try and hurt the platforms and deal with the consequences later. Yeah, let's kill 230. Yeah, let's break them up. They still are monopolies and you're still not actually solving. You're, you're, you're hurting the business, right? You will absolutely hurt the tech monopolies if either of those things come to fruition. But there will be a bunch of unintended consequences. And there is a much more, um, you know, there are ways to do this uh, with a lot less collateral damage. This being rein in the um, over-aggressive, unprecedented, you know, violation of our civil liberties that these tech monopolies are infringing upon uh, without just kind of scorched earth laying waste and 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 damaging the rest of the tech community that is trying to compete against these platforms. And we are seeing ways like a rumble and other places um, that are creating alternatives to these content platforms that are particularly in question. We are seeing ways that marketplaces, um, product marketplaces are competing with Amazon and having success. There needs to be a role for government in this, but unfortunately, just the government has not, whether it's the executive branch, the judicial branch, um, the Department of Justice, they just really haven't been able to figure out how to thread the needle. They clearly don't watch the show well enough. Um, otherwise, <laughs> you know, we'd be well on our way here. Um, it's just, uh, it's quite unfortunate to see. So, We'll still be on YouTube, um, but we will be actively promoting our show elsewhere. So I will leave you with that. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon.